Well, good morning, church family. It's so good to be with you this morning. Listen, I know that this past Friday was football Friday night, so high school football is back. And not only that, but many of the schools in our town walked away with victories. I know Eagles Landing Christian Academy went to Brentwood and won there. I think Ola won. I also think Madonna High School won. Um, I believe Union Grove won. Uh, so we have a lot to celebrate in our town. It's so good uh, to know that uh, football is back, but fall is starting to set in the air. You walk outside today, and it is beautiful, beautiful weather. So hopefully you will enjoy that this afternoon. Uh, listen, we're going to be starting a new series today, a series in the book of Acts called You Are Sent. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Acts. Uh, you're going to find the Gospel of Matthew, first Gospel in the New Testament, Mark, Luke, John, and then you'll find the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 1 this morning. We're going to spend uh, really the next few months in this book. We're going to divide the book of Acts into three different sections. So this is volume 1. We're going to go from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 6. Next year we'll come back at some point, cover volume 2, and then at some point later we'll cover volume 3. So we're going to be dividing it into thirds, and this is going to be the first part of that third um, that we'll be covering together. I want to begin my time this, this morning by asking you this question. I want you to think about this, okay? What comes to your mind when you hear the word church? Think about that. What comes to your mind when you hear the word church? For many of you, when you hear the word church, the first thing that comes to your mind is gathering with family and friends around potluck dinners and barbecue plates, right? For others of you, it's the variety of programs that maybe you experience as a child or maybe your children are experiencing things like Vacation Bible School, Awanas, Royal Ambassadors, or even student lock-ins. Maybe what comes to your mind when you think or hear the word church is a red brick building. Maybe a gray cinder, cinder block building. But nonetheless, you think of a specific building that comes to your mind, and preferably for some of you, that building has a steeple. Which reminds me of the old nursery rhyme. Remember it? Here's the church, here's the steeple. You open it up and you see all the people. That nursery rhyme, although it's very cute and it's very clever, it can also give us a very inaccurate view of the church. We can gain many misunderstandings because of that nursery rhyme. We start looking at the church as a building, a building that preferably has a steeple. And in that building, under that steeple is a congregation of a group of people. What I want to do through this series is I want to broaden our understanding of the church. The church, by very definition, is not a building. The church, by definition, is not a building that's made of brick. It's not a building that's made of wood, it's not a building that's made of cinder block, it's not a building at all. And if most of us are willing to admit it and to put ourselves out there a little bit, when we think of church, typically what we think is a place that we go, a building. 
a specific place that exists in a specific location. You know, all those things that I mentioned just a moment ago, all of them are good, um, I guess the, the word would be is descriptions of the church, but none of them are a good definition of the church. So you might be wondering this morning, okay, Trey, if we're going to define the church, how would we define the church this morning? I would define this church, the, 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 more, the, the, the word church this morning like this. The church is a movement of God. The church is a movement of God. Sure, I could have went much deeper and I could have said that the church is a group of baptized believers that are on mission together because that is what the church is. I could have even went so far as to say that the church is a group of baptized believers who are on mission together, who observe the ordinances because they do, and they exist under authority because they do. All of those things are true, but for the sake of where we're headed, our, our conversation through the book of Acts, what you're going to see as this book continues to unfold, what you need to understand is that the church is a movement of God. And guess what movements do? They move. It's not, it's not clever, right? Like it's, it's pretty self-explanatory. Movements move. And that's what the church was intended to be, is a movement. A movement, by definition, is when people gather around a specific idea and then they leave to spread that idea to other people. That's what a movement is. There's a movement for everything in America today, right? I mean, there's a cause. If there's a cause, there's a movement for it. There's a hashtag for it. Like, we get behind movements like we've never gotten behind them before in our country. But here's the reality. The greatest cause and the greatest movement began in the book of Acts when the local church was first established. If our idea of church is merely a place, a building, or a thing that we do on Sunday mornings, then our idea is too small. What we're going to do through this series together, you are sent, is we're going to broaden our notion of what the church is so that we can become the people, the men and women that God wants us to be. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in the book of Acts. We're going to be reading uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8 this morning. It says this in the book of Acts. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, you can stop there. In the first book, O Theophilus, o Theophilus, listen, the book of Acts is authored by a guy by the name of Luke. Luke was an ordinary man. Luke was a common man. Luke was a physician by trade. He became a historian. Luke liked evidence. Luke liked facts because of him being a physician. This is who Luke was. Luke, the guy who wrote Acts, is the same guy who wrote the gospel of Luke. Right, like that's pretty, pretty genius, right? Call, called it after his own name. Like Again, just very, very easy to understand. So Luke is this author. He's saying in the first book, that was the gospel of Luke. He's implying that this is my second book, the book of Acts. This is the sequel to the gospel of Luke. Well, who is Luke writing to? He says in the first book, O Theophilus. Now listen, we don't know a lot about Theophilus. We don't know a whole lot about him, but what we do know about Theophilus is that he was a very well-known man. Okay, Not only was he well-known, but we can assume safely that he was not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. And hence, this is a little bit of the reason why Luke is writing to him. So Luke is writing to Theophilus, and this is what he says in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. I want you to pay attention to that word began in verse 1. 
Look at it. It says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. In the original language, this word implies an action that is still happening. Okay? It means there's an action that's happening that has not stopped and will not stop. It's actually taking place and still happening right now. This is what Luke is trying to say by the use of this word began. He's saying this. Jesus is not finished with the work that Jesus started. You might remember, if you walk through the Gospel of Luke, when you get to the Gospel of Luke at the very end, Luke chapter 24, we are told there that Jesus is going to ascend into heaven. And Luke has some very specific, or Jesus did, has some very specific instructions for his disciples as Jesus was ascending into heaven. Namely, that the promised Holy Spirit was going to come. And that's what we get to at the end of Luke chapter 24. But this is specifically what Luke or what Jesus told the disciples at the end of Luke chapter 24. He said, I want you to remain in Jerusalem until the coming of the Holy Spirit. What Luke is saying is that what Jesus started in his first book, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is going to continue in his second book, the book of Acts. And then he adds this. He, being Jesus, verse 3, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I told you a moment ago that Luke was a physician by trade. He also became a historian. He is now providing evidence and proof of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's giving this evidence to Theophilus. Luke says Jesus spent 40 days on earth providing evidence of his own resurrection. He is indeed the Messiah, the long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah. He's proving that that's who he is. This is what happens at the, Luke, at the end of Luke chapter 24. Jesus came to the disciples, and what did the disciples think? Do you remember when Jesus came at the very end of the Gospel of Luke? They said, oh no, this is a ghost. This is a spirit. This certainly can't be Jesus, and Jesus responds to them. He says, I'm not a ghost. I'm not a spirit at all. And if you don't believe me, just come over here and touch my hands. Come over here and touch my feet. If I were a ghost, you would just, your hand would just go straight through me. But because I'm not a ghost, I have skin, I have bone, I'm tangible, I'm real. This is evidence that I am the Jesus that died in the tomb. I am the Jesus that died on the cross and resurrected three days later. Come over here and touch. And then if that's not enough... Before Jesus left them, he said, and by the way, I'm hungry, so give me some of that fish. And the disciples who understood, okay, this must not be a ghost because ghosts don't eat, right? And he's asking for food to prove that he's not a ghost. The only thing ghosts eat is socks in the dryer, right? Because who knows where they go. <laughs> but they don't eat food. And this is Jesus' way of saying, I'm not a ghost. I've resurrected from the grave. I'm alive. I'm not dead. And then Luke continues in verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Okay, this is all coming from Luke chapter 24. But to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, or promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So now what Luke is doing is he's introducing you and I to the main character of this book, the book of Acts. The main character of the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus is about to depart to heaven. 
He's about to ascend to the right hand of the Father, but his ministry is not going to stop here on this earth. Luke's saying his ministry is going to continue through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, church family, this is where I believe that you and I would do ourselves well to just stop and to consider what Luke is actually saying to us and what the Holy Spirit of God is actually saying to us as well. Here it is. The most dangerous thing that you and I can do, and might I add the most pointless thing that you and I can do, is attempt or try to do God's work apart from God's Spirit. Do you hear that? The most dangerous thing, church family, that you and I can do is to attempt to do God's work apart from God's spirit. The most pointless thing that you and I can do in our lives is to attempt to do God's work apart from God's spirit. Listen, you cannot become the man that you are supposed to become apart from the spirit of God doing his work. And you cannot become the woman that God wants you to become apart from the spirit of God doing his work. We cannot become the church that God wants us to become apart from the Spirit of God doing His work. The most dangerous, and might I add, the most pointless thing that you and I can do in all of our lives is to try to do God's work absent from God's Spirit. Do you know how spiritually draining it is to do the work of God outside of the Spirit of God? It is the most agonizing thing that you'll ever do. The reason so many people in ministry burn out by the day is because those ministers are trying to do God's work absent from God's spirit. The reason so many Sunday school teachers or life group leaders or connect group leaders or small group leaders or D group leaders, whatever kind of leader you're doing when you're pouring and investing into other people, the reason so many people quit that isn't just because they've aged out, and they feel like they've graduated out, and they've lost their voice. It's because they burn out from doing God's work apart from God's Spirit. There comes a place and a time where they think they know enough, and they can give enough that they don't have to continue to feed themselves. I don't really need to go to the church gathering. I don't really need to wake up and read the text of Scripture. I don't really need to spend that much time with God. I mean, I've done that for 30 years. I've got enough to do ministry on my own. And we start to act like we can do God's work apart from God's spirit. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Jesus is about to leave the earth. And he is talking to his 11 men, his 11 disciples. He huddles them up in a little huddle. He brings them together. And you have to know that these men, these aren't like super significant and prestigious men in their community. These aren't the most networked men in their community. I mean, these dudes, for the most part, they were tax collectors and they were fishermen, okay? For the most part, they wanted to be left alone. That's who these men were. They weren't super connected. But Jesus calls all of them together. He gets them in this huddle. And he begins to execute what I would refer to as his own exit strategy from the earth. He's about to tell them about his ascension into heaven and what he expects out of them when he leaves. And he tells them this. He says, don't leave here, Jerusalem, until the Holy Spirit comes. The work you are commanded to do, disciples, the work that I am tasking you to do, disciples, you cannot do apart from the Holy Spirit of God in you. 
So what Luke is about to do, or what Jesus is about to do, is he's about to give his game plan. This is the game plan for you 11 disciples and for us as a church as things continue to move forward through the power of the Spirit. What's the game plan? Look at Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 says this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Not you might be my witness, not you can be my witnesses if it fits your gift or calling, not, not that it's an option to know you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, locally, and in all Judea and Samaria, nationally, and to the end of the earth, globally. I want you to pay attention to what Jesus is saying here because it's quite significant, church family. He doesn't say, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And if you really want to do this, then you can go and be my witnesses. And you can be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And if you don't like Jerusalem, he doesn't use the word or. Or you can just go to Judea and Samaria. And if you don't really care about Judea and Samaria, or you could just go to you know, somewhere else in the earth. That's not what Jesus does. Instead, he says, no, you will be my witnesses, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where you're currently located, and in all Judea and Samaria, that is essentially your, your, your nation, your, your domestic mission, and then also to the end of the earth, which is your global calling as a child of God, too. Let me say it like this, because I hope, hope this lands a plane, and I hope it's clear. Every Christian should be committed in some capacity to spreading the gospel everywhere. And I know that rubs a lot of us wrong because there's certain, there's usually two types of people in the room. One type says, man, I'm committed to locally. I want us to win where we're currently at. I want us to rent, win our community. I want us to do mission here. I want us to put all of our eggs in that basket. And then you got other people who are just the opposite. Man, I want us to win the country, or you know, win the nations, or win the. I want us to focus all of our efforts overseas. I want to do everything there. I want to send everybody out and send everybody out. So you got two people, two different spectrums of people. Well, the beauty of Acts one eight is all of you are covered, because we're supposed to live on mission, both here where we work, where we live, where we play, domestically, and we're supposed to do this internationally. Now think about this. Jesus calls the disciples together. He tells them his exit strategy. And he says, I'm about to ascend into heaven. I'm going to sit at the right hand of God. And I want you to hang out here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to go and you're going to be my witnesses. And you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Think about that, church family. Think about if Jesus were to descend today. And Jesus came out of heaven and he stepped right here on this stage. And he said, Eagles Landing First Baptist Church, I have a task that I want you to accomplish. I want you to stay right here until the Holy Spirit of God indwells your heart. And when he does, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to win Henry County. I want you to win Spalding County, Eagles Landing Griffin. I want you to win the state of Georgia. And then I want you to win the United States of America. And then I want you to go and win the nations for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Could you imagine what you and I would feel like if God did that today? If Jesus literally stood on this stage and said that to us? We would think, holy cow, that's a tall task. I'm, I'm not equipped to do that. I don't know enough to accomplish that. How in the world am I going to live here and still reach out all the way over there? 
All these things will be going through our minds as to why we cannot complete the mission that God has given us. And and get this, when these 11 men were told to do this, they did not have any social networking tools available to them. There was no Instagram, there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter, there was no TikTok. They had none of that social media stuff available to them. Now also, they had no marketing tools. These disciples weren't given by Jesus an advertising budget. And to make matters worse, they had no billboards in their days. They had no 104.7 The Fish. These were common men. Common men, they didn't have a ton of skills. They didn't have a ton of theological training. When you study the life of these men, these 11, you don't really see a whole bunch of bold and bright personalities. This is a tall task. Yet Jesus is saying to them, these 11 men, I want you to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's when acid reflux entered the world, right? (laughs) Stresses them out. Here's what astonishes me about the mission that Jesus is calling the disciples to. Jerusalem is where the Jews lived. And the Jews were people who did not like the disciples, and they did not like the disciples' message. Judea, Samaria, were considered the outcast of society. You might remember the Samaritan woman that nobody talked to. I remember her. These were the people that the disciples and his kind didn't like. And yet the God of the Bible is saying, I want you to go to the people who don't like you, and I want you to go to the people that you don't like, and I want you to win them to Jesus. Church family, you and I are not exempt from this calling. God will call you to people who do not like you. God will call you to people who have written you off. God will call you to people who have backstabbed you, who have talked behind your back, who are not in your your fan club. He will call you to go share the gospel of Jesus with those very people. And simultaneously, he will also call you to people that you don't particularly care for. That neighbor that rubs you wrong, that coworker that you'd rather avoid and steer clear of, God will call you to share Jesus with him or her too. And if that's not enough, Jesus says, then, after you go tell the people that don't like you and you go tell the people that you don't like about the gospel of Jesus, then, without the aid of iMaps or Google Maps, I want you to go to the ends of the earth. It's a tall task that Jesus is calling them to, is it not? So the question that you have to ask is how on earth are the disciples going to do this? I mean, how, how on earth are these disciples going to go share the gospel with men and women that don't like them? How on earth are these disciples going to go and share the gospel with people that they don't like? How on earth are these disciples going to take the gospel to parts of the earth that have yet to be discovered. How are they going to do this? Well, the answer is found here in Acts 1.8. It says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Church family, that name that came to your mind when I said that you're called to people who you don't like, 
it's only going to happen, you're only going to share the gospel when the power of God has come upon you. The same thing is true. Those people who don't like you to go share the gospel with them, that's only going to happen when the Spirit of God comes and dwells you. Again, we have to be reminded, we cannot do God's work apart from God's Spirit. The only way that you and I will ever take the gospel to the people that Jesus has called us to take the gospel to is when the Spirit of God makes that abundantly clear in our heart and then moves us in the direction to make that happen. And then in verse 6 it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, this is a great question. They're not wrong for asking this question. In our language here, in our text, in your Bible, it does look like the form of a question. But in the original language, it's more like an expression of a deep desire. They're saying, okay, Jesus, you are alive. You did go to the cross. You did die. You did rise again three days later. You resurrected from the grave. You're here on this earth, and you've done all this ministry. You are the Messiah. You are the king. So since you are the king, can we just go ahead and have you reign as king now and bring peace to earth and all of this be over? That's not a bad question. And then Jesus responds like this. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Acts 1-8, by the way, church family, is the heart of our text today, but Acts 1-8 is also the heart of the entire book of Acts. So you might do yourselves well at least to try to memorize it, to flesh it out a little bit. It's a great verse to study. But what Jesus is saying is this is how the movement begins. The movement begins when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You know, there's really three things that define the church as a movement. There's three characteristics, if you will, that define the church as a movement. And I asked you last week, if you wanted to be a part of a movement, if you wanted to be a part of something bigger than yourselves, and almost every one of us said, you know what, I do. I want to fulfill my ultimate purpose here on this earth. I don't want to waste my time that I have here on this earth. I want to do what God has called me to do. One of the things I desire to do most is to humbly obey the Lord Jesus Christ. So church, if you and I want to become a part of a movement, we would do ourselves well to heed the three things that this church heeded as well. The first thing is this. Their hearts were gripped by the gospel. Their hearts were gripped by the gospel. They were completely and totally surrendered to Christ. Look at verse 8. It says this, but you, you can underline that word if you write in your Bible, underline that word, you. But you, Jesus is talking to his followers. He is talking to the very men who have placed their faith and their trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. When Acts was written, Christians had everything to lose and absolutely nothing to gain. Nero wanted all the Christians out of Rome. And not only did he want to disband them and dismantle them from Rome, he wanted all the Christians wiped off the face of the earth. To become a child of God back then, you had nothing to gain. You had everything to lose. But these men were so gripped by the gospel of Jesus that they were willing to stake their own life and their own reputation in him. My question is very simple for you this morning. Is your heart gripped by the gospel? Is it gripped by the gospel? 
when you learn about these 11 men and you learn that even the words, my witnesses, carries with it at the root, the word martyrdom, saying that you've got to be willing to go and lay your life down for me, when you start to think about these men who are willing to step up to the tall task of saying, you know what, no matter where God might send me, I'm going to go and I'd be willing to die there. And then you and I won't wake up in the morning and read our Bibles because it's inconvenient. Things don't make sense, do they? I read this past week that 90% of evangelical Christians have never shared their faith with one person. 90% of evangelical Christians have never sat across the table and shared Jesus with one person. And you wonder, how in the world did we become worthy of the name evangelical Christian? At the very heart of evangelicalism is the fact that we evangelize, we share our faith with the lost, yet 90% of evangelical Christians have never done that. Why? Fear? Maybe we don't know enough or we don't think we know enough. Maybe we don't really understand the true authority and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Maybe because we're afraid of being rejected by man. But we can put in all the answers that come to our mind with why we don't do it. But at the very core of every single one of those, what I would call excuses, is this. We simply are not willing to obey. And Jesus was abundantly clear if you love me, you will obey me. And yet, if this room alone, if just 90% of us, or if just 10% of us are sharing our faith, that means 90% of us are deliberately rebelling against God. And yet, if I gave you a poll today saying, do you love him or do you not, majority of us would check the box, we absolutely do. And if Jesus, again, were on this stage, he would say, well, your actions are matching your words. Church, let that not be said about us. I told you last week, I asked Pastor Tim, if you could go through time, what's the one thing that you would say about Eagles Landing that's always been true? And he said, man, we've always been a church dedicated and like surrendered to evangelism. When you walk out or drive out of our parking lots on the back side of the directional signage, you're going to see a verse in Philemon that continues to remind you that you're a witness as you leave the parking lot, that you're entering your mission field, taking the gospel to people who need it most. But for many of us, we don't even notice those verses because they've been there so long. My question to you is, do you want to be that? Do you want to be a church that fully, completely obeys the Lord in every area of our life. These men and these women, their hearts were gripped by the gospel. The second thing, they were surrendered to the leading of the Holy Spirit. They were surrendered. They were also sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Think about it like this. They understood that effective ministry will only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. So apart from the Holy Spirit, there was no reason to even try to do God's work. There's no reason to try to do God's work if the Spirit of God isn't moving us in that direction. There's no reason to do that if the Spirit of God isn't made known in our lives. Let me, let me say it like this. I think I, I told you a few weeks ago that it was Adrian Rogers. It might not have been him. I'm just giving him credit for it, okay? But I believe it was him who said, man, you will know a lot about the heartbeat of the church by how many people attend the prayer meeting. I, I just want to be sincere. Listen, I'm not trying to guilt anybody. I think you guys are learning me by now that my heart's not to try to guilt you into things. I'm just 
pretty much a straight shooter, and, and I think this is a time that's appropriate to be straight. But if we organize a prayer gathering, and there's 2,000 people in our church and 100 of them come, what would that say about us? I mean, it's through prayer that the Spirit of God begins to work. And we've got to be on our faces, if not here, at your home, wherever, on our faces before God, asking him over and over and over to do a mighty work both in us and to do a mighty work through us, a work that we're incapable of doing apart from the Spirit. And I want to challenge you to begin doing that. I want to tell you something that nobody knows about me. And I'm not telling you this to pat myself on the back. I'm telling you this because I want to invite you in on it. Every Tuesday and Thursday, I walk the premise of this campus. And every Tuesday and Thursday, I prayer walk the premise of this campus. And I'm asking God, I'm praying those signs that you see. There's verses on the back of those signs. I'm praying those things over this campus, asking God to do a big work both in us and to do a big work through us. But you know what else I'm doing? When I say doing, I've done it a few times, okay? I've done it like three or four times. But I've done it in the past month, three or four times. I'm driving through the parking lot of Salem, Glenhaven, and every now and then when I'm on the other side of town, I'll even go through like Turning Point and a church over there, Bethany. And I'll ask God, use this church to reach this community for you. Help us become kingdom-minded people who want to reach the unbelievers in our community. Let, let's not juggle church membership. You know, I don't want to juggle church membership. You know, just a drove go over to Salem and a drove go over to Glenhaven and a drove go over to, you know, Bethany. I don't want to juggle membership. I want to reach people who don't know Jesus. I want to help people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ come to know him because that's what we are tasked to do. So what this means for us is that we've got to rub shoulders with people that don't know him. We've got to be sensitive to the Spirit's prompting and tell people who don't know Christ about Jesus Christ. They were, they were surrendered to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the last one this morning is this. The last one this morning is this. They were completely devoted to the mission. They were completely devoted to the mission. The mission gave them purpose. The, the, the mission focused their lives. Look at verse 8. The very end, it says, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We've got to understand this, church family. Listen, the kingdom of God moves through the witness of his people. Do you hear that? The kingdom of God moves through the witness of his people. If you want to be a part of a movement, it doesn't happen because you have 12 pastors who are uber excited about evangelism. If you want to be a part of a movement, it doesn't happen because you have a pastoral staff that is full of pastors and directors who just know eloquently how to share their faith and they're out there sharing it for everyone to everyone. If you want to be a part of a movement, you have to play your role and sharing Jesus with people who don't know him. And when you take 2,000, 1,500, however many, and everyone starts saying yes to the Lord and saying, I want to obey you, and I want to seek the lost, and I want to find the lost, and I want to share Jesus with the lost, and I want to see my lost friend, my lost family member, my lost coworker, I want to see them baptized into the family of God, then a movement begins. You can begin a movement by taking in a bunch of church people and growing. Or you can begin a movement, the gospel movement, by seeing in the droves the number added to their, 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 they added to their number daily, those who are being saved. Because 
disciples and Christians of Christ, they were out there sharing their faith with unbelievers. The kingdom of God moves through the witness of his people. Church family, this is how I want to close. We need to understand that you and I, as a church, we are called. The church is not a cruise ship. It's an aircraft carrier. You know the difference? If we were a cruise ship, then it would be all about you. You would be coming on board, and we would be here to meet all of your needs. We'd have a variety, a buffet of programs to offer you, just like a cruise liner, because it's all about you. We want to make sure every single need that you have is met. We want to have a response to make you happy so that when you leave, you might come back. We can approach church that way if you want to. A lot of churches that have a bunch of pizza parties, that's exactly what they do. Let's do enough to keep them coming back. Or we can be a little bit different. We can say, you know what, we want to be more like an aircraft carrier. You know what an aircraft carrier does? It equips planes to do battle. But it doesn't stay over here. Noah enters the battle and equips the planes to do the battle. It sends those planes off. They go do the war and they come back. They gather. They scatter. They gather. They scatter. They send the plane off. Bullet hits its wing. Comes back to the dock. It gets equipped. It gets fixed. And it gets sent back out. Church family, that's what we're called to do. We're called to gather, to be encouraged, to edify the saints so that we can continue to do the ministry. We're called to come in here to refocus our lives and our attention and our affection and our allegiance on the Lord Jesus Christ and on him alone so that we can scatter back out there and share Jesus with those who have never heard him. We're here for one to two hours a week. We're out there for six and three-fourths days of the week. It's out there where the battle is real. And it's out there where men and women, boys and girls, need to know Jesus. As you walked in this morning, you saw a bright big light board that had the word Jesus written across it. If you didn't come in these back doors, I'd highly encourage you to go by by, by out there. It's a beautiful board. Today, those bulbs are lit. They're all lit, signifying what we could be as the light of Christ, the church. Tomorrow, We're going to turn all those bulbs off. What we're asking you to do today is over the past two weeks, we've asked you to identify and to pray through who your one will be. The one person that God lays on your heart for you to begin praying for every single day in hopes of sharing the gospel with them and then being committed, sensitive, and and, and surrendered to the leadership's leading to go and share the gospel when you feel like he says to go. And by now, we hope that many of you have already come up with that name. Remember, we asked you to try to find someone locally where you work, in your neighborhood, where you live, where you play. Maybe your kids play ball and it's a parent on that ball team. Maybe you work somewhere and it's a coworker. By now, you should all have that name and we have metallic markers out there. We want you to write your one's name on that board. Fill that board up. Some of you have two names. Some of you have three names. That's okay. Fill that board up. And every time one of those people come to know Jesus, 
We see them baptized here. We're going to turn a bulb back on, signifying how bright we could be when men and women place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, we come to you this morning, and we're asking you to help us see clearly where we need to repent and where we need to get our lives right so that we can put our yes on the table in all manners of life. But secondly, who is it that you want us to begin investing our lives and our heart into? God, I pray that today we'll see many names on that board, not just for the sake of having names on a board. Anybody can fill, you know, put a name on a board with a marker. We want these to be men and women, boys and girls, that we're going to be committed to praying for, that we're going to be begging the Spirit of God to work in their lives. And by the grace and the truth of your gospel, we pray that we'll be able to celebrate their conversion as they come to know Jesus and faithfully follow you in believer's baptism. God, we know that we cannot do this work apart from you. We can't do it apart from you. So we're asking you, Lord, to do your work in us and to do your work through us. We believe you will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us today?